Hi, and welcome to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a finance partner at the international law firm Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman. Today we're speaking with Christian Solomon, a partner in Pillsbury's corporate practice who provides strategic advice to startup, emerging growth, and established businesses, including in M&A, VC financings, and securities offerings. Christian is particularly well known within the San Diego, California community of technology entrepreneurs and investors, and within the national community of hospitality dealmakers. Christian was our guest in episode number 17 back in September of 2020. Welcome back to our podcast, Christian. Thanks for having me, Joel. Glad to be here. When we last spoke seven months ago, you told us about a hoped-for but slow recovery of the hotel industry, the ugliness of distressed projects, some potential opportunities for mezzanine lenders and certain sellers, flag repositioning, and key money for stellar property managers. With acceleration in the vaccine timetable, varying degrees of reopening by states across the country, and an uptick in airline travel, I'm getting the sense that there might be some light at the end of the very long tunnel the hospitality sector was staring down back in December. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is the light at the end of the tunnel. One of my friends in the industry would say, we don't know what the the wattage is of that light bulb, and we're all trying to figure that out. Uh, But you're, you're definitely seeing some positive trends across the the travel, leisure, and hospitality industry. You see it just in TSA data, the number of people who are flying. You see it in the hotel occupancy data for certain types of hotels. Uh, And it's just obviously sort of the sense that people are probably feeling in all different parts of the country as things open up uh, pretty broadly in some places and maybe a little less broadly in others, but people are back out at restaurants uh, and hotels and doing things of the sort, particularly with spring break. Having just passed, it sure seems that was the case. But how bright is that bulb? I don't think we quite know yet, in part because of just the the obvious dynamic reality of, of of the pandemic and what's going on with different variants and the vaccine race to beat the variants. But you could definitely see in everything that you read about in the industry, and I see it talking to our clients and with my friends in the industry, is that the, the things that you would want to see are starting to happen. But also some of the things that when we talked about in September, some of the things that were less optimistic, the reality of distressed properties and the realities of winners and losers, whether you think about owners, lenders, managers, anybody else within the industry landscape, it's starting to shake out more. A lot of people were, if not sitting on their hands in that wait and see mode, and there's a lot less of that. There's actually more things happening, good and bad, than I would fit in many ways than there was in September. I know that there's been um, also uh, some notable bankruptcies uh, as well as foreclosures and receiverships. So maybe I was getting a little bit ahead of myself on that. But I have read that the construction market is picking up again. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are definitely more noticeable bankruptcies and and properties being sold. 
um, through foreclosure and the like. I mean, ripped from the headlines today, yesterday, the day before, we can find examples of them across the country. Uh, but construction is interesting. Uh, you know, if you just look at the latest data through the folks who follow that, you know, there are a lot of rooms under construction and rooms amounts that are not too different than what was under, constrict, under construction before the pandemic. Now, maybe that's in part because a lot of things were put on hold, you know, deferred, but you know, how much has been abandoned versus deferred. But from what we're seeing, there's a lot of folks who, because they have dry powder uh, and they're thinking about the reality of their long-term positioning, if they're proceeding with their projects, particularly ones that were far enough along. And you know, I can think of a number of clients where we're straight in the mix where they're doing significant renovations. You know, they've, and some of them have already completed it. They've found opportunity with either closure or partial closure to do that. I, I live down the street from the Hotel Dell, a uh, famous hotel in Coronado in San Diego. And that's certainly what happened there. Uh, the property is still going under construction, but if you visited it today compared to visiting it this time last year, a lot has changed. It is a lot fresher and newer for a very old hotel. And you mentioned dry powder, Christian. I know that that's driven a lot of activity in the M&A market generally, uh, particularly among private equity shops and other investors who've been waiting uh, in the wings for a long time. Um, has the hospitality sector been able to participate in that M&A rebound yet? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You're starting to see it uh, directly in the extended stay uh, transaction, extended stay America's transaction. Uh, you're otherwise seeing lots of folks uh, moving into or otherwise trying to find opportunity for themselves in the drive-to markets. Uh, and then otherwise, you see the, the public REITs and others talking about how they're thinking about other markets, not necessarily just drive-to markets, which have been performing well, just like extended stay has been performing well, at least in the context of how well things can be performing. But folks are actively thinking about other markets, and we see it in the transactions we're working on. You see it in the press. You see it when you talk around. It's just not for many who would only think about the top 10 or the top 25 markets. They're thinking elsewhere. So that is driving deals. Now, those top 10 markets obviously remain important, um, but those are the ones that are probably most hampered right now when you think of the big urban areas, New York, Chicago, certainly to some degree, even where I sit in San Diego. You know, the convention traffic uh, hasn't returned, at least not yet. And what about management structures and incentives? Have there been changes uh, in those types of things based on um, the lengthy slump that was brought on by the pandemic and the fall off in travel and indoor dining? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things going on with managers. There's just sort of the, the negative reality of people talking about performance tests and the ability to potentially terminate or use the threat of termination to renegotiate management contracts. So people have been for quite some time, but it's more on their radar now that you know, numbers for 2020 are final and perhaps audited or soon audited if there's an audit taking place is looking at those provisions more closely and thinking about it. Uh, you know, in the same light, if you're doing a new deal, the managers are Thinking about the flip side, uh, not only with respect to that provision, but some protection for themselves. And so many worked for little to no fees because they work off the top line. And that's created a whole bunch of interesting incentives. There's a number of folks out there who are aggressive 
in the M&A market, it sort of gets to the, the earlier point, but from the management perspective, there's the ones who are better positioned or have more institutional availability, and whether that's money or just the fact that some of their properties were drive-to or resort-driven, so they otherwise didn't have as poor of a year as some of their competitors, they're looking to pick up other management companies or opportunities, two, three, four, five. And people always talk about key money uh, and key money seems to be out there and people are using it, uh, at least in some of the deals that we are seeing. And uh, so I think that just like we see in so many of the different aspects of the, the wait and see game, the, the wait and see game of the shuffle of management companies and, and management companies looking for opportunities to grow either through, you know, organic growth, finding new deals just through their business development teams or through acquisition, I really think we're going to see a a big push of that for the remainder of the year. And what can you tell us about some other asset classes and how they've fared? I know there's been a boom in certain areas, uh, such as home builders, um, as well as potential redesign of senior residences and student housing. Yeah, you'd notice it certainly here in California because it's talked about, I can think of properties in the San Diego area, but up and down the coast. I know it's very true in other parts of the country as well, too, is there has just been hotel acquisitions because states or other municipalities have been buying uh, hotels for purposes of uh, of homelessness and, and finding transitional housing for those folks. It's certainly been greatly used for student housing. I think that's a, a trend uh, that is here to stay in the same regards, whether it's senior living, multifamily, people are conver- actively converting hotels at the moment. Uh, we've been involved in a few hotels where clients have uh, either sold it or left management of the property, where that's exactly what's happening with the property today. And I can think of a few deals where we've actually been involved, where people are planning on moving forward with the hotel, but they're actually thinking and negotiating where it's appropriate to have that ability, whether it's less likely a year or two from now, but 5, 10, 15 years down the road, to have that flexibility. So people are thinking about hotels and repositioning that asset in a way that I can't think of in the nearly 25 years that I've been involved with the industry. Thank you for that update, Christian. I know that deal participants are eager to get back to doing what they do best, and hopefully things will pick up steam quickly. But before you go, Have your friends at Misadventure Vodka been able to get back to their main business of making spirits, or are they still cranking out hand sanitizer from their distillery like you described the last time we spoke? They are back to making vodka is primarily what they do, just like a lot of folks in the the hotel industry. We're figuring out ways to, whether it's through closure, partial closure, or some other adaptive reuse in the interim, you know, making hand sanitizer was a, a great step for them and helpful to lots of their customers when needed. But now they're back to focusing on what they do. But you know, like a lot of folks in the hotel industry or other industries for that matter, they're trying to figure out the best way to re-engage with customers. But their vodka is just as good. And it, you know, maybe uh, if, uh, with a vaccine in hand or other things, it'll, it'll feel that much better. Uh, to enjoy it. So uh, it's hopefully that's their one example, along with many in the industry, where people will be thinking about how they moved well through the tough times uh, and then found a way to flourish as we return to some semblance of normal. 
That, that's great, Christian. And it's also been great chatting with you today. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. I look forward to talking with you again soon. And now it's time for This Week in History. This week, we celebrate the birthdays of two people who brought so much joy to so many others around the world through their unsurpassed musical talent. Duke Ellington, considered by many to be the greatest all-time figure in all of jazz, was born on April 29, 1899 in Washington, D.C., and opened at the Cotton Club in New York City at the young age of 28. In the mid-1930s, the Duke would meet a young, talented singer who was still a teenager while she was performing with Chick Webb and his orchestra at the legendary Savoy Ballroom in Harlem just a few years after she debuted winning Amateur Night at another of Harlem's great venues, the Apollo Theater. This young lady, who was born on April 25, 1917 in Newport News, Virginia, would eventually be known as the First Lady of Song and the Queen of Jazz. She won 13 Grammy Awards during her career, more than any other female jazz vocalist. Ella Fitzgerald and Duke Ellington developed what would be a 40-year friendship and released five fantastic albums together, two of which capture their chemistry in live performances. And in 1974, when the Duke passed away, Ella sang her heart out at his funeral. So here's to Ella and the Duke. Thank you for making our world a bit more beautiful than it would otherwise be. Now you can listen to all our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Until next time, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast.